if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter four. As we've been going through this particular chapter, of course, as we've seen over the last few weeks, Peter has been teaching Christians about how we are to live in the last days, in the end times, as we await the return of Christ. He's called church to love for one another, rooted in desire to show hospitality to one another, and he's going to continue now speaking about how we are to live in light of the end times, but, but now he's preparing the people of God for the reality of suffering, and how are we to respond to that. So our text this morning is looking at this in particular in verses 12 to 19, and so we will begin by, by reading this text together. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, when you sent your Son into the world to redeem sinners, the work of redemption was the bearing of a cross. The very work of bringing sinners to yourself, of reconciling them and atoning for their sins required an eternal sacrifice which Jesus offered His own life willingly. He suffered for sinners such as us. And He calls all of those who have been saved by His blood, who are His disciples, He calls all of us to imitate Him in His own life, which involves bearing a cross. Lord, Your Word teaches us as well that, that it is through sufferings, particularly sufferings related to faithfulness to You, that it is through these very sufferings that You shape and mold and refine Your people into a people who, who have a strong trust and hope in You. And, 
and into a people who are molded after the image of Christ, into a people who are holy and set apart exclusively for Your will. As You prepare us for the great day to come when in the kingdom of Christ, our whole lives will be perfectly in pursuit of Your glory. So I pray, Lord, that that as we go through this text this morning that speaks to the reality, the surety that we will suffer if we follow Christ. I pray that You would be preparing us for that day when it comes that our faith would not waver, but that in and through these sufferings we would bear witness to the surpassing glory of Christ. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think many of us are somewhat familiar with and opposed to the prosperity gospel. Most all of us are at least somewhat familiar with what that is and who some of its main teachers are. You can think of some of these well-known televangelists like Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, and others. Besides rejecting the biblical doctrine of God, which is at the foundation of all Christian orthodoxy, And in some cases, among these various televangelists, denying the the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical revelation that God, there is only one God who exists eternally as three persons. Some of them deny that outright. Besides denying these key doctrines of God, however, prosperity preachers teach that It's essentially God's desire in the Gospel for you to become God-like. For you to have this this power to effectuate, if you will, whatever your desires may be. Faith is connected to something that a person does in order to activate or to compel God to bless you with material prosperity, with physical healing, and with all kinds of worldly success. If you are not rich, if you are not healthy and fit, well, it's because your faith is weak. You need a stronger faith. And with that stronger faith, all of these successes would go away. Your faith was simply stronger than everything that you've ever wanted would be granted to you here and now, as Joel Osteen puts it, your best life would be now. Of course, the reality of that too is that you would lose your soul forever. Many Christians recognize that this message is a false gospel and they rightly reject it. But there is, however, a more subtle version of this teaching that many do embrace. Many evangelicals embrace. It's what some have called soft prosperity gospel, or uh, what others have, have written about, they've described it as moralistic, therapeutic deism, especially some. It's essentially the wedding of American ideals, right, the American dream with Christianity. There's an underlying assumption that the way the gospel works, the way obedience to God and walking with Christ works is that if I believe in the Gospel, obedient to the will of God, well, what I can expect in this life is relative peace and, and quiet and worldly success. That's the general expectation. Sure, I may not be able to live in a multi- million dollar home. I may not be able to drive a hundred thousand dollar vehicle. But I can expect a stable career. Expect a nice house. I can expect two cars. 
two and a half children, whatever it may be. And even if this isn't the exact vision or the exact expectation, the underlying assumption is that I should expect some kind of worldly blessings. People will like me. My plans will succeed. My health will be good. And if any of these things go wrong or are absent or are stripped away, well, that's what's actually surprising. Something has gone wrong. Maybe my faith is weak. Maybe I'm being punished. Because the suffering, this perhaps in some cases just inconveniences have come my way. This is what's actually seen as abnormal. Whatever the case may be, this soft form of prosperity gospel assumes that it is strange and abnormal if affliction comes your way. In the text that we're in this morning, however, both the hard form of the prosperity gospel and the softer version of it are, of course, clearly rejected. Peter wants Christians here to be prepared for the inevitability of affliction and, and suffering, particularly as it relates to the gospel of Christ. He is by no means saying here that we will always suffer and that if we aren't suffering, there's something that's gone wrong in that case, right? He's not He's not proclaiming some sort of masochistic gospel where it's just you're craving affliction. The pendulum hasn't swung in the opposite direction and turned into this, this other kind of error where a lack of suffering implies that you're being disobedient. But suffering because of the gospel is something that is promised to happen to all of God's people at some point and in some form. Whether that be social rejection, or whether that be physical persecution, beating and death. The whole range of possibilities is a guarantee to come upon Christians when you are walking faithfully with Christ. We must never forget the very clear statement that Paul makes on this very same matter in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where he says there, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All, he says. He's not leaving any room for a middle category there. If you desire and if you pursue living a godly life in Christ, one of the things that is guaranteed for you, promised, for you. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we hear the word promise and we're only thinking about blessing, right? But there are promises of things to come that may be very uncomfortable. And this is one of the things that Paul promises. This will happen. You will be persecuted. At some point and in some form, it will happen. Jesus himself, of course, taught his disciples this very same truth. If the world hates the Master, if the world hated me, he said of himself to his disciples, it will also hate you. You're identified with me. You're walking with me. You're imitating me. You have the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. And if it hated me, it will hate you. It's a clear promise, a guarantee. And here in our passage this morning, Peter is speaking about the very same matter. And he's wanting to prepare Christians for the day when that affliction will come.
come. Now, we've already seen, of course, throughout this letter that many of these Christians have already been enduring some measure of persecution and suffering. But he's speaking also about what is to come. More is on the horizon. This passage is indeed a a kind of get-ready passage. There are some passages where there are exhortations concerning things that we ought to be doing even now on a regular basis. That's one of the things we've seen over the last couple of weeks, right? Passages where we are exhorted to love one another. This is something we are doing regularly all the time. But then there are these other passages where we're being prepared for things that may come down the road. And this is one of those. This passage is preparing Christians for difficult times to come. One of Peter's primary concerns as he speaks on the matter of suffering as a Christian is that he wants Christians to understand that God is sovereign even over their sufferings. He hasn't lost control. He hasn't disappeared. That when these these fiery trials come upon you, Don't think that this is something that's outside of the will of God. Do not get depressed. Do not be despondent over the the thought that God has turned against you or God is absent. No, he, He wants them to understand all through this passage that God is very much present in it. He has ordained it. He is sovereign over it. And He is carrying out His good purposes through it. I mean, notice at the very end of this passage in verse 19, he says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. These sufferings are happening according to the will of God. He wants them to understand the reality of God's sovereignty even over their afflictions. Let's put it another way. It would be tempting to believe that when we suffer, it must be because something is happening that is outside the will of God. Again, that He's lost control of something. Or or that the the evil of man is what's doing this. And and God wishes that it wasn't happening, but He can't do anything about it because He can't do anything about the will of man. It's tempting to want to remove God from our sufferings altogether and believe that He's sovereign only over the good things that happen to us. But that is not how Peter wants us to think. He wants us, again, to understand very clearly that God is sovereign over every aspect of our lives and this includes our sufferings. And he wants us to understand that even through these sufferings, God is accomplishing His good and perfect will to purify His people and to make us holy through those sufferings. And in this, and because of this, most especially, we should rejoice. So look with me first, beginning in verse 12, just to see how Peter is unpacking this idea here. And we'll notice, first of all, that Peter says that our sufferings are an aspect of divine testing. The will of God in a test. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. Now, the the first thing that is worth pointing out here is that Peter is speaking about a kind of suffering that is very painful. He's not just speaking about some minor inconvenience. You know, your, your car breaks down at the worst time, which is all the time when it breaks down, right? <laughs> you, know, you, you had plans for the week and they got ruined for, for whatever reason. Well, he's, he's not talking about just minor inconveniences here that we may get a little annoyed with. 
No, no he's, he's referring here to these sufferings is, is literally a burning. A fire that is burning. The ESV translates this here as, as the fiery trial to communicate the idea that the testing that Christians are enduring is, is severe. And this word literally refers to the act of burning something. It's the same word we find at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verse 9, when John there is speaking of the fall of, of Babylon. And he says that the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. It's the consuming work of fire here that is being described. And Peter is saying, don't be surprised when the burning comes. The hot fire touches you, burns you. He, of course, here is not speaking about the fires of hell consuming the wicked in judgment, but of the painful sufferings that Christians will have to endure as Christians. I mean, you can just think of some of the more recent events, things that have happened in Ukraine. Christians very specifically being persecuted there, seminaries being destroyed. Besides that, you can think of many of our Chinese brothers and sisters who are having to gather in churches underground lest they be arrested. Many of them taken, dragged from their homes, imprisoned. That's painful. That is a burden to the heart and to the soul. It causes much grief. He is talking, of course, about real Painful sufferings. And he's saying, don't be surprised, number one, when these come. Why? He says, because they are to test you. To test you. And this means two things. Number one, the suffering that Christians endure is number one, it's ordained of God. It's a divine test. It's part of His will. It's sent by Him. God isn't absent from it. He's not absent from those sufferings. not absent from that pain. It's not random. It's very purposeful. And it's purposeful because God Himself is the one doing the testing through the means of these sufferings. He's the refiner. It's just like what is said of the Lord in in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3. Malachi says there of the Lord, he says He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God tests and refines His people. He shapes them accordingly. He shapes them by those sufferings into the image of Christ. Which also means, secondly, that this fiery trial that Peter is speaking of, this testing of the people of God, serves the purpose of purifying. It's not for punishment. They're not being punished here. It's for sanctification. It removes the sinful dross from a man through fire. So that what is left after the sin is removed is pure gold. The pure gold of a pure faith in God and a hope in Him. You'll remember, if you will, that back in chapter 1, Peter spoke of the very same thing in verses 6-7 to when he said of these Christians, he says that, that they rejoice in the salvation of God. And then notice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God intends to conform His people into the image of His Son. To guard them through faith and to refine and strengthen their faith. And He does so by giving His people various crosses to bear. Just as Jesus bore a cross. We cannot expect that if we follow the Master who bore a cross given to Him by God to bear and received by Him willingly to bear, we cannot expect that following Him does not also involve us bearing crosses given to us to bear to make us like the Son. That's what Peter's saying here. It it should be expected because this is what God is using to make you like His Son. As His people continue to look to Him and hope in Him, even as they endure a cross, they look like, they become more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter is telling Christians that you ought not to be surprised if If again, God gives you a cross to bear because it is refining you and making you holy as He is holy. Then he adds, if you look in verse 13, then he adds, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You rejoice now, in the, in the midst of affliction, as you recognize your sharing in the sufferings of, of Christ, but that also then culminates in, a, in an even further joy when Christ saves you from those afflictions at His return. Now, Peter here is not saying that we ought to have some sort of strange delight in suffering itself. We're not rejoicing over the particular afflictions. But rather that if we are suffering for the name of Christ, if we are partaking in the very same kinds of sufferings He had to endure because of His faithfulness to God, this, more than anything else, is a true sign of God's presence and blessing upon us. In fact, the early Christians understood this very well, particularly Peter who writes this letter. In Acts chapter 5, Luke tells us about the time when the apostles themselves, including Peter, were arrested for preaching the Gospel and were brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin and were commanded to no longer preach and teach in the name of of Christ. And it was Peter himself who stood up and said, you know, you judge for yourself whether or not we're going to obey God or man. He was put on trial for preaching the He understood the cost. And, and Luke tells us that they're eventually, they're eventually released from prison. And he tells us that they were then beaten, then released. And then in verse 41, notice what he, what he says, how, how he describes their response. He says, then they left the presence of the Jewish council. That is, all the apostles, including Peter himself, They left the presence of of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Peter was just beaten. There's nothing delightful about that. Nobody wants to get any scars from being beaten. And yet he, he walks away him together with the other apostles rejoicing, not over the beating, 
but that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That God had considered them worthy to bear that cross and to continue to bear witness to Christ in and through it. And he rejoices. God has brought you in and through a test that is as close to the sufferings of Christ as one can be. Which means that this suffering that Peter endured, this suffering that he's preparing Christians to endure, this is no indication of some failure on their part or some absence on God's part. It is rather a clear indication of His blessing on His people. Which is what he goes on to say in verse 14. He says there, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. This is just one of the ways that you can suffer. Right? Sometimes we sort of relegate this and say, ah, that, that's not real persecution. You know, real persecution is when you, you die. You know, somebody kills you or, or beats you. That's real persecution. Well, I mean, Peter considers insults as part of persecution. Being reviled for the name of Christ. This is a, this is a real test. Nobody likes to be insulted. Nobody likes to be shamed. And so he says here, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You've been counted worthy. You can see here how much Peter had been shaped by Christ Himself in these, these instructions, this, this teaching. We saw a few weeks ago, of course, how he exhorted Christians to pray. And as he had learned this lesson himself from Christ, that we are always to watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation, right? His, his teaching is a spillover from what he had received from Christ himself. And here, it's as if he's echoing the words of Christ that he had heard preached and taught on the Sermon on the Mount. When Christ said there, He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Peter's basically saying the same thing. This is what he learned from Christ. This is what he's experienced in his own life. This is what he's teaching Christians to do. Rejoice and be glad when you are insulted for the name of Christ. It's no sign of God's blessing if you have all of the riches in the world or all of the comforts that the world has to offer. But if you are walking faithfully with Christ and are suffering as a result of that faithfulness, Peter says, as well as Christ Himself, that you are most especially blessed. And God is most especially and peculiarly in an even greater measure with you in those sufferings. Peter says, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're familiar with some of the Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, you will recognize this last statement here is an allusion to Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah speaks of the Spirit of the Lord resting upon Christ to equip Him to carry out the righteous rule of the Messianic King in perfect righteousness. Isaiah says there in that passage, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being the father of David. So this is a, a reference to one of David's descendants. The Christ who is to come. The anointed king. Isaiah's promising this, this is going to come. The Christ is going to come. This shoot from, from Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And then notice, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Peter alludes to this text here, teaching us that when we endure sufferings for the name of Christ and we remain faithful in them and we rejoice in them, 
that very same Spirit of God rests upon us. It is the Spirit of God that keeps us and that indeed works within us to transform us and to sanctify our hearts so that when the world is telling us and, and, and shaming us and, and saying, you must renounce Christ and, 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 and telling us that, that what we preach, what we believe is evil and wicked and you must turn from it as the world is announcing all of these messages and, and pressuring the people of God to turn from Christ, we will respond ultimately to that very same world with the same words that Peter uttered to the council. We must obey God rather than men. And we will respond in that way because the Spirit of God rests upon us. It is God who is with us, strengthening us to endure those very trials. That boldness itself will be the result of the Spirit of God at work within us. And in this, we rejoice. It is God who is keeping us through the very trials He is bringing us through to make us more like Christ. Now, as the passage continues, there is a second point that must be seen, which in a sense qualifies what Peter has has said, which is that we, we also need to make sure that if we are suffering, it is indeed because of the name of Christ and not because we're just acting wickedly. Peter says in verse 15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Like if you're arrested because you've committed some atrocity like murder or you've stolen someone's property, it's very clear that you're receiving what you deserve. The just penalty, the just penalty for your action, and that your suffering does not in any way have any blessing. But even more broadly, Peter speaks here of evil doing and meddling, getting involved in things that don't concern you, stirring up controversies through if you're suffering the consequences of just acting sinfully, the fact that you claim to be a Christian will have nothing to do with those sufferings. There are some people, for example, who have very little actual concern about souls. They don't have a deep love for their neighbors that is leading them to share the gospel with them. They just like to argue. They just like to get into fights and debates. They have a, an unhealthy desire for controversy. There's some people who are like that. And if people get upset with them because, frankly, they're just acting like jerks, it has nothing to do with Christ. What Peter is saying, this is no indication of the Spirit of God and of glory resting upon you and of blessing. Arguments and debates are, of course, going to happen if you're sharing the Gospel. Whenever the Apostle Paul himself would go into the Jewish synagogues to preach the Gospel to them there, you better believe that he was having to reason from the Scriptures and to get into debates to show them the, the truth that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah in accordance with the Old Testament Scriptures. Right? That, that's inevitable. It's going to happen. But there's a major difference between, between someone who's just itching to argue and someone who is itching for Christ to be magnified through the salvation of sinners. And what we must always be sure of and must ask the Lord to search our hearts and expose is the motivations and intentions of our hearts. And if our motives are pure and we suffer for the sake of His name, then we can rejoice in truth. Which leads us lastly to 
to the reason why suffering is to be expected, which is what we find in verses 16 to 19. Peter returns here to the person who suffers, indeed, as a Christian, and he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then he explains, he goes on, why should we not be ashamed? The world wants us to be ashamed. Those who insult us want us to be ashamed, but but why should we rather rejoice and glorify God? Well, because, he says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? So, we should not be ashamed because, number one, judgment begins with the household of God. The people who are called by His name, who are identified as His people. And then two, the outcome of the judgment for those who aren't the people of God will be severe. Those are his two reasons why we ought not to be ashamed, but to glorify God. This needs some unpacking, though. I think the first thing I want you to see here, and that needs to be pointed out as we read this text and seek to understand it, is that number one, the word judgment here does not mean condemnation. Like a lot of times we, we can read that word judgment and we just read it as, as, as if it's just that negative condemnation. And of course, if that was the meaning of the word here, this would contradict everything that Peter had just said. God's people, the household of God, are not under condemnation evidenced by their sufferings. In fact, it's the reverse. Right? The reverse is the case. Their sufferings are an indication of their blessing from God. The word for judgment here simply refers to the act of carrying out justice, whether that be in the form of vindication or in the form of condemnation. And in this case, the judgment that is being carried out is of a, of a purifying sort. It's a judgment that exposes those who truly belong to God and those who do not. And that purifies and sanctifies those who are His. It is that, that fiery testing that Peter spoke of above. And this fiery test serves the purpose of cleansing the people of God and sorting out the people of God. It's a kind of foretaste of the final judgment that is to come. And God distinguishes truly between those who are actually His sheep and those who are just goats. Either those who outright deny Him or those who are false professors. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 31 and following, Jesus speaks of this final judgment to come. And He says there, He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then a little bit further down, to His sheep, to His people, He says to them, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then to those who are not His people, who are the goats, He says to them, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This final judgment where the sheep are separated from the goats is something that in a very real sense has already begun in part now. God is already about the work purifying His people and of cleansing His house. Cleansing those who are identified as His people. Jesus, in fact, speaks of this purifying work of the people of God even now. 
in the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13, where if you remember there, in that parable, there are people who initially receive the Word of God, who have all of the outward characteristics of being a believer. They profess faith in Christ. They say, we we love Christ. We love the Gospel. Christ is my Savior. But as soon as testing comes, as soon as some affliction arises, or the, the concerns of the world come upon them, Jesus says they fall away. They had no root in them. They sprung up for a moment. And then they fall away. That, that is part of an, of, of an even now judging period in which God is separating sheep from goats. And then there are He speaks of who receive the Word and when the period of testing comes, what do they do? They endure. They remain faithful and they produce fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. As Peter speaks of judgment beginning with the household of God, this is what he's referring to. It is promised that fiery trials and tests will come upon those who are identified as the people of God in order to sort out and expose those who are truly His from those who are mere false professors. It has a purifying purpose. But a purifying purpose that ultimately results on the one hand in the salvation of those who are truly His people and on the other hand the eternal judgment of those who are not. And so Peter's point is that we ought not to be ashamed when suffering comes upon us for the name of Christ Because it will result in our salvation and vindication and eternal judgment for those who do not obey God. Those who are afflicting you, in other words, will be held accountable for those afflictions. And you will be delivered out of those afflictions. Same reason why he quotes from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, of course the ESV says scarcely, it's more accurately with difficulty. CSB puts it that way. If the, if the righteous are, are saved with difficulty, with trials that come upon them, what will be the outcome of the sinner and the ungodly? Eternal judgment. And an exposing of their wicked behaviors against the people of God and their having to give, it a, give an account for it. The Christian's expectation is that because of the gospel and because of what we understand God to be doing to purify his people and how he's going about the work purifying His people through testing. The Christian's expectation is that at some point we will suffer for the Gospel. That shouldn't be surprising. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. This is expected. But our relationship to suffering has now fundamentally changed. Suffering does not cause us to cower and shrink back. It is not a a justification for disobedience. Rather, what we do as believers is that we pick up our cross. We follow Christ. And we entrust our souls to God. We entrust our care to Him who has very clearly spoken to us and revealed to us that all of our afflictions serve the purpose of making us like Christ. And so like Christ, we 
we endure the cross, despising its shame. And we look forward to what is beyond the cross with much joy. And we rejoice when those afflictions come, knowing that God has now considered us worthy to suffer for the name. That's a fundamentally different relationship to suffering apart from the gospel. It's one that always ends in victory. And victory granted to us by God. And so friends, Peter exhorts us, and, and we are to heed this exhortation that whether it is in times of contentment, whether it is in times of good, or whether it is in times of severe trial and affliction, we are always a people who rejoice in God and in His good and perfect will. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you sent your Son into the world to ransom sinners, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to bear a cross and to bear the wrath of God in his flesh in order to reconcile us to himself. And now, for us who trust in Christ, who have been saved by his blood, you have revealed very clearly to us that that the work of making us like Christ has, has now begun. You are day by day maturing us that we may grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And in this process of sanctification, of making us holy, there will be crosses for us to bear. And with every cross, you promise that you will be with us and that the Spirit of God and of glory will rest upon us. And so, Father, I pray that with this understanding, with this knowledge that even affliction serves your good purposes and ends to to make us like Christ, that this would embolden us all the more to be able to say with the apostles, we will obey God rather than men. And to go forth from here in boldness to proclaim the gospel in love and in humility to the lost. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.